another summer. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this time in your word, and we're grateful for great men of faith like Abraham. We'd ask that we would be benefited by looking at his life. In your son's name, amen. Okay, that's, that's what, as you know, the Bible studies on is the life of Abraham, and uh, it's not that much Old Testament Bible text through the center part of Genesis. Um, it's a, uh, uh, a subject, though, that gets picked up by the New Testament. You'll find a number of the passages on your notes are New Testament explanatory passages regarding the faith of Abraham. Uh, and we'll be following those through the, the scenes of Abraham's um, life. And we basically have, if you wanted to divide the life up into four weeks, which I needed to do, um, you're dealing with the call of Abraham this week um, and the initial lay of the land regarding him and Sarai. Uh, he's still Abram at this point. Uh, we get Melchizedek this week. Um, and the second week we get Hagar, the birth of Ishmael, and the following week with the birth of Isaac, and then post Sarah's death uh, for the last week, uh, which ends up being um, uh, getting Isaac a wife and so forth. So that's what we're going to be covering, hopefully with some spiritual benefit. Some of this is historic. Um, just in terms of the background, um, at the, the top of the first page and on the left, it gives a quick outline of Abram's uh, genealogy, starting with Terah, but uh, so, uh, and Terah is Abram's dad. If you want, you have a patriarchal family tree on page three, which I just did up to clarify who was who and which wife made which kid, um, and down to the 12 tribes. And then a timeline for starting with Abraham on the left working down to Moses on the right. So, so you get a sense of whose lives overlapped whose lives. Those, those bars are actually correct in their how many years are covered and who they overlap with. So uh, it's interesting that, that there is a distance between Noah and Abram of about 50 years. The end of Noah's life, then 50 years, then Abram is born. So not very far removed from a lot of the things that you go, wow, that's way back. Um, how we get a date for Abram, um, and I'm trying to call him Abram here while he's called Abram in the text, switch him to Abraham when he gets switched. Um, the, um, and that's I, one reason I got a flip chart out was to help with uh, Dating. Uh, we, in antiquity, you can't just go, oh, it was in X number of years BC. You have to prove it because you, nobody wrote down in X something year BC, hey, it's 500 years before Christ. They, they didn't tell you that. Um, so there's very difficult ways to find, especially biblical dates, because there's not a truckload of uh, external connections until later in Old Testament history where you start to get famous ancient pagan kings mentioned, like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. Those guys we know of in history. Uh, the way we get a date for Abram, uh, 
is not simple, but here, here we go. The Assyrians kept records of every year, like a ruler. Uh, they just said, this happened, this happened, this happened, and one thing per year, and they just listed every year. And we are able to very accurately, very concretely give years to those Assyrian kings because it connects to the known ancient world um, in the Roman period. It comes all the way back to maybe 17, 1700 um, BC. Uh, the interesting thing was a guy named Shalmaneser III. This will be on the test. <laughs> Shalmaneser III um, wrote an inscription. Hand that back to Muffy. Wrote an inscription, uh, a couple inscriptions um, that tied in with those lists. One was called in the sixth in the sixth year, and one was called in the eighteenth year. And in the sixth year, he mentions Ahab, king of Israel. And in the eighteenth year, he mentions Jehu, king of Israel. And those are twelve. Those inscriptions are twelve years apart, and we know this from the Assyrians keeping track of every stinking year. Um, and so we know that sometime in Ahab's um, reign was the sixth year of Shalmaneser, sometime in the 18th year of Shalmaneser, Jehu was reigning. Well, interestingly enough, they're 12 years apart, and that's how many years apart Jehu and Ahab are. So it puts you right at the end of Ahab's reign, which is approximately 850 B.C. Inside the Bible, you have the number of years going back in the kings of Israel, Omri and uh, Zimri and various others, going back to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, to find out the end of Solomon's reign and how long Solomon reigned was 40 years. And so the accession date of Solomon in the Bible, using this date, Solomon, did I spell it right? Um, it was 971 B.C. This is on your notes. Solomon took the throne in 971 B.C. In 1 Kings 6, this is why you have, you have to piece together the data, and the guys who wrote the Bible weren't doing you any favors um, in this. 1 Kings 6, it tells you in the fourth year of Solomon, the temple began to be built. Does Jacob have notes? Did I... Did John get notes? No, I kind of Pass these back to John. This is all being recorded. Um, Solomon accedes to the throne in 971. The fourth year of Solomon, doing the math backwards, is 967, four years forward in time. And it says in 1 Kings 6 that this temple was started 480 years after the Exodus. Okay, so the Exodus is in fourteen forty-seven, according to that verse. Some Christians don't believe that; uh, they go for a later date, but not in this backyard. So the Exodus is in fourteen forty-seven. Now, just to show you how how on, somewhere on this sheet, I think it's on the next page is a quote from Galatians 3 on the right-hand side of page 2. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings. 
referring to many, but referring to one, and two, your offspring, which is Christ. Now this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant, blah, 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 blah. Paul says that the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. The law was the same year as the Exodus. They got to Sinai in the same year. So uh, I believe that adds up 430 years, 1877 BC is the year of the promise to Abram. Okay? And he was 75 years old when it happened. So he was born in 1952. You're welcome. Yes, you feel like that, 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 that mirror sense of importance in history. So that's how you get a date for... Well, that puts Abram in certain spots historically. Um, it puts him in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. So you know that the pharaoh we're dealing with this week is Sesostris III. He's the, high, the, the major king of the Middle Kingdom. Um, I think there was only one dynasty in the Middle Kingdom. And uh, so Abram enters Egypt during that period. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees uh, somewhere between Ur III and uh, what's called Second Isin. These are dominant city-states of the southern Mesopotamian valley. So we know what kind of culture he came out of. We know what he wandered through. Uh, the reason I've added that picture, it's a picture of Sarai being visited by the princes of Pharaoh before he gets, she gets hauled off to... Gee, I like the look on her face. <laughs> but I like how he depicts... This is Tissot, I think, uh, a Bible illustrator. Uh, I, like, I like the cultural... It's not a Bible-looking culture. It's a weird-looking culture. But she's probably fine under there. But she's not having any of it. It does reflect her, her qualities. Uh, so basically, what you have is then trying to untie when did these initial things happen in Abram's life. Um, when it says there on the first page, top of the left, um, it says... Uh, Where is it? The first verse, when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, that miscommunicates. You would think that he was 75 years old, 70 years old when Abram was born. He lists three of his sons, Abram first, but we know from other passages, Abram wasn't born until he was 130. Okay? Because um, this is how this works. Um, Abram left uh, the main part of the text, Genesis 12, verse 4, uh, right there on the top in the middle. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. It says in Acts 7 2. Um, this is Stephen's speech to the uh, Sanhedrin. Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land which I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. 
And after this, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So, 75 is after his father dies. His father dies, back up in Genesis 11, and the days of Terah were 205 years. So 130 is when Abram was born of Terah, and Nahor and Haran were probably older brothers. Haran dies early, before they even move out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, location, I have a map. It's a satellite, actually a satellite picture of Palestine. That's not a, they took that from space. Um, and a few things marked out of Abram's life. But this doesn't give us where we, where we start. This is as far north as Damascus, right up here. But Haran is approximately right up here. The Tigris and Euphrates Valley, the Tigris over here, the Euphrates goes down, desert out here, and this is uh, down to Babylon and Ur and, and uh, Erech and some of the other city-states. Um, and so they were down in Ur of the Chaldees at some point in Abram's more youthful years um, when his brother, after his brother Haran had died, they moved up to Haran as a family um, and, uh, but, um, you know, probably after, well, there's only 70 years or 75 years available to us where he's already married to Sarai when they move. Okay? So, uh, there's a kind of a narrow, ooh, a narrow window um, of just a few decades from moving from Ur of the Chaldees. But that lets you know culturally what kind of if you know this is Ur three, um, a third dynasty of Ur, or second Isin, you you get a sense of what kind of law codes are going on. There's the law code of Ur Namu at that point, or Lipidishtar, and those are pre-Hammurabian law codes. So uh, it gives you some sense of that world, uh, very uh, different than what we think of as a Bible world. And that's why I like this picture because it didn't look like a Bible chick there. <laughs> And those punks on the those Egyptian punks really made it, but but basically that's where we we are. So uh, Terah has died. Abram is seventy five. Sarai is sixty five. All right, going to keep that in mind, ladies. She keeps getting swiped by other men at sixty five. So, um, but going back to the first verse of Genesis twelve. Now the Lord said to Abram. Stephen makes clear that before he even leaves Ur of the Chaldees, the God of glory appeared to him. This is out of a pagan culture. He's very pagan. His father is pagan. I give you that verse out of Joshua 24 there on the left-hand side. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your fathers lived of, of old beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay? So you have to realize that Abram is pre-Jewish, he's pre-Christian, he's pre-anybody else believing this nonsense, and the God of glory met with him or spoke with him before he left Ur of the Chaldees and laid this groundwork in his life that he was going to go out even before he had moved to Haran. He then moves to Haran, but the promise is following him from early on. And the promise... And, 
Abraham's dealing with it is kind of the crucial learning point that we as Christians should be picking up on, and Paul is big on it in Romans and on Galatians and the writer of Hebrews the same way. But he says in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. Now, there are various promises like this repeated through Abram's life. A lot of people like to be pointing out that that's how you treat the Jews is really what matters. Because, But the writers of the New Testament are arguing from this promise that it's about Christ and the Christians. Okay, those are the people that the promise actually went to. Um, the uh, uh, Hebrews passage on the side there with Galatians, Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was to go. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then the Galatians 3 passage, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. That's the basic argument Paul is going for, that there's a superiority to the faith of Abraham than to the Jewishness of Abraham. He's the father of the Jews, but his faith is a superior uh, act, metaphysically, in his life, and he argues that from a number of different um, angles. That's, and, and, and one of the things you're going to run into here in a few verses uh, he was 75, takes Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, um, that is uh, Haran's son, and uh, all their possessions go down into the land of Canaan. The Canaanites, which were the predominant people here, are what we call the Phoenicians. Um, the Phoenicians were Sidon, Tyre, Beirut, Byblos, those were the uh, major cities on the coast here, but the land people were also Can called the Canaani, which means merchants in uh, ancient uh, languages, but it's off of the name Canaan. Uh, Sidon was a descendant of Canaan in the Table of Nations, and so the Phoenicians are the people that um, populate the area, and, they're the, and, and some other nationalities too. Hittites are there, and, and some other people that we'll run into. Um, and he goes as far as Shechem, the Oak of Morah. Now, I'm going to wave this around, and you, it's not like you can tell, because this has, this has even the little hills. I mean, everything, waves on the sea. There's Shechem right here, right up near Mount Gerizim, where Christ had the conversation um, uh, near Samaria. Uh, first stops at Shechem. And I want you to note something about Abram. Abram is living in a world where he is the only one of this religion. Maybe his tribal group is. He is a follower of the Most High God. It says in Exodus that when he's, after he's told Moses, they use the name of God here in the, oh, like in verse 4, and Abram went as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's the name of Yahweh. 
But at this point, this is Moses writing that. Okay, he's the one compiling all this together. Abram doesn't know that name. God tells Moses later on that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know me by that name. So one of the earlier names for the, the high God Abram is operating under, but he is, as it says here, goes to the Oak at Shechem, and the Lord appeared, verse 7, to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. What I'd like you to look at is Abram's faithfulness about this belief and his unfaithfulness about this belief. There's a, there's a, a slight suggestion that Abram doesn't, well, not a slight, a notable suggest, set of suggestions that Abram doesn't know entirely what he ought to be doing. He's been told the land he's in, he's sojourning in at Shechem, he's, you know, this is yours for your descendants. And he, and he builds an altar. And I've set that in red where it, where it says that, who had appeared to him. Thence he removed to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, get back on the map again. Here's Shechem. Here's east of Bethel. Bethel is more than likely right here. Ai is under the post-it note. So there's a mountain between the two, and that's where he set up his second altar. But at this point, there's a few more movements. He's being told by God, one, to go out, not knowing, it said in, in um, Hebrews, whither he was going. He gets to Canaan. God says, this is the spot. He moves on. God confirms the spot. But then he keeps going. He goes down to the Negev. The Negev is the desert down here. Wilderness of, here's the Negev right, right here. Wilderness of Zen. Um, I don't know which wilderness that is. Paran. Um, in between Israel and uh, Egypt. So he keeps going down that direction. And then he keeps going. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For there was famine, it was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful to behold. Now we say that to our wives, no matter, you know, you've been together 50, 60 years, and she's getting along in the walker, and you're complimenting her still. You're lying. She's not. Not so... You might say that. You might even think that. But if Bill Clinton were driving through town, he wouldn't stop the car. Pharaoh's people go, oh my gosh, Abram knows his wife's unbelievably beautiful at 65. He says, and this is where I suspect that there is a... Uh, when he keeps, it says, and Abram went as the Lord had told him, verse 4. He gets to the place where God wants him to be. And then he overshoots it all the way down into Egypt. And that whole section in Egypt, until he goes back, he doesn't build an altar to the Lord. Okay, I, maybe it's an argument from silence. I'm not saying it's saying this. But he went to where God was going to give him the land, and then he leaves it. And in that situation where he leaves it, he's in there with uh, the Egyptians, he gets his wife to say, I'm his sister, so he wouldn't get killed. The selfishness of that act, um, you can't look at Abram and say, 
what a saint. But we're not supposed to look at Abram and say, what a saint. That is the nature of faith. Faith is not the cherry on top of a great man's life. Faith is, brings the grace of God for a sinful man. That's why we are part of this religion, is because we were sinful, and the grace of God through faith was available to us. It's exemplified in Abram. Well, of course, these Egyptian princes here come to look her over, take her off to the harem. Abram doesn't make a stink. We don't know how Pharaoh gets the... Again, this is Sosdrus III. This is an, he's not mentioned in the Bible by that name. just calls him Pharaoh. But if the dating is correct, this is Middle Kingdom Egypt. It's Sosdrus. Um, but he seems to have far more... politeness about the thing, a sensitivity to what was wrong. How could you have, what did he say? What have you, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now, then here is your wife, take her and be gone. He gets kicked out of the country. Pharaoh looks a lot better than Abram. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him on his, you think, if Abram had been right, he would have been doubly dead by this point. Because he was saying, they're going to kill me for you. When they find out, not only is he married to her, but it brought a curse on Pharaoh's house, right? The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now maybe Sarai told Pharaoh, finally, maybe the the wise men of Egypt were able to figure those things out from the stars. Whatever the case, he, he's even doubly miffed, but he doesn't kill Abram. God may have warned him. A little later, we have the same problem with Abimelech. And God lets Abimelech know, you better not harm this guy. So that might have been part of it. So Abram went up from Egypt. Now, at this point, he goes back to Bethel and Ai, the place he had raised the altar. Verse uh, three, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his, his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He's back on track. He's back in the land he was told to be in. He was back on, in the land he was promised. Um, you have to stop and say, what would you... You, we have the comfort of standing in the backyard praising Abram in North Idaho after 4,000 years. And um, that's a pretty good degree of fame and makes us feel comfortable to feel part of such a big idea on the part of God to reach lost men for the forgiveness of sins. Abram doesn't, Abram doesn't have it. He's got God speaking to him. There's that. We, Greg and I were talking about that at dinner about... God having relationships with some of these men. They get the impression that God wasn't just appearing to him in dreams. There's a sense of, of uh, what he says, uh, the Lord appeared to Abram in verse 7 of the first chapter. We don't know what kind of appearance it was. We know there was a physical appearance at one point at the Oaks of Mamre, a little later, and that's next week. But uh, 
of. God doesn't show up at our houses, but he is believing against, one, a largely empty world, filled with paganism. There is no Jerusalem. There are no Jews. This is, there are no patriarchs to look back at. There are no apostles. There's no Jesus. There's just his encounter with God. And consequently, what faith you see, you ought to greatly credit, but don't then say the faith makes everything, I have to explain away every bad thing the guy did. Now, what where was it? Page two. At this point, Lot and Abram um, have a difficulty between their staff. Um, they weren't playing well with others. And Lot chooses, it says, um, they're, remember they're up at Bethel and Ai, and they look down into the Jordan Valley. This is the Jordan, Galilee, the Dead Sea. This sea wasn't there. Okay? Um, let's take a look at where it says that. And Lot, verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, while Lot dwelt among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now that story occurs during the life of Abram. We don't, we're not going to cover it because we only have four weeks, and Abram doesn't play in that story. Uh, but you probably know it already. Um, and God, once again, looking at where, what Lot has chosen, and just like Abram did when he made a practical choice, there was a famine in the land, I'm going on to Egypt. Things just went a little bit sideways when he went to Egypt. Lot looks at the land and says, oh, that looks better than that, I'll take that. We know later on that Lot's circumstance becomes far worse. Regardless how righteous he was trying to be, his family's destroyed, his life is destroyed, the cities are destroyed. God is now but with Abram. Verse 14, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moves his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord again. Remember, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle. These are personal uh, places of worship. Whatever he's coming up with, there's no law of the Jews, there's no ceremony. He's just worshiping. There's no priesthood. Uh, it's just Abram offering sacrifices. Hebron is right here, the Oaks of Mamre. Uh, if you want to know where you are, uh, here's Bethlehem, here's Jerusalem. So Hebron is about, looks like about 15 miles south of Bethlehem. Uh, a, a notable city later on during the conquest, that's where all the giants lived. And... Uh, Joshua and Caleb had to deal with the giants out of Hebron, but uh, at this point, you're 1870, you're 400 years earlier. So, um, uh, maybe 450 years. Um, 
this section and a few other sections in the Septuagint is what Galatians 3, there in the margin, uh, when Paul is arguing, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. It's a little confusing because in some of the cases, it's talking about the number of descendants, the actual number. In other cases, the word descendants in the Septuagint is the singular seed. It's not the word we, we say in all the passages, descendants, descendants, descendants. Your seed and the singular nature of it, um, Paul says this is the promise that the promise is going to be referenced in Christ or fulfilled in Christ. And then your relationship with Christ by faith becomes your relationship to a new promise. We don't believe the same promise that Abram believes. The, the fulfillment of the promise was to Christ, the singular. Christ is the new promise. But you're now doing the same thing that Abram was doing. Your God has told you. Your God has met with you and had told you there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. Your faith in him is the same kind of faith that Abram was living by. Not the same, not the same gospel, the same faith. Okay? There was nothing in Abram's faith that changed him into a new being. If you could believe any promise of God and just be changed by believing promises, then the work of Christ was unnecessary on the cross. You, know, you could just believe and God would convert you. Conversion of the soul is part of the promise that Christians have, not the promise Abram had. He didn't say, you will, your soul will be converted, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, no, you're going to inherit this land and you're going to be famous. Okay, that's the, that's the promise. So, at this point is the action section. Uh, a bunch of kings, this is a period in history before um, what we would call empires were really developed. Uh, most of it was city-state uh, worlds. These were, um, you did have Assyria, you did have uh, city-states that held big territories of other cities, but it was all city governments. In Greece, you know, Athens was a city-state, and it didn't have an Athenian country. It had Athens that ruled a certain area. So it's a city. These, these kings we don't know of from external sources. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Arioch, king of Elisar. Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. Tidal, king of Goyim. All these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Birsha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Uh, Shember king of Zeboim, king of Bela, that is Zoar, in case you were wondering. Um, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. That's how we know that this valley used to be uh, not filled with water. Uh, and, uh, um, and those city-states were down in, in, that, in that region. These were all kings that were from Mesopotamia. So Elam, uh, and um, Shinar are both over where Babylon is. So they've made the long haul march. They were supposed to be getting tribute from the city-states and they didn't get it and so they came over to punish them. And they beat up on the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the others. But in that, since Lot is down there living with them, 
he gets snagged as a hostage with all of his stuff. It says down in verse um, 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. But when one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the oaks are named for a guy who's a friend of Abram's, brother of Eshcol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. At this point, you get a sense of that it's not a small group, you know, Abram and his wife, you know, made 2.5 servants, 12 goats, wandering around the desert serving God. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Okay? You're talking about a serious tribe with a trained army, a trained fighting force. They're not just guys who know, hey, they pushed us around in the bar last night, we're going to go beat some people up. No, these are soldiers who are trained as soldiers, who are ready to go after this uh, group of allied kings from uh, Babylon and chase them down. He divided his forces and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. He's down here, he chases them to there. That's a long walk. Uh, let's see, what is that? About 20 miles a day and a forced march probably. One, two, three, four, five, six days to catch up with them. So there's a um, uh, moving quickly. They're trying to get back to Shinar. They're heading the road to Damascus. They get up to the Euphrates and then down the Euphrates to home. He catches them there and uh, uh, he and his servants and routed them and pursued them to Hoba north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his goods and the women and the people. Now this is where Melchizedek enters the story. And Melchizedek is one of the anchor points in the New Testament about the, you might say, how the biblical writers are, there's a kind of leverage in the text that, that Paul's saying, and we'll already see this next week, that as circumcision comes on as a promise, the promise to Abram of the land happens before the signification of the Jewishness. And it's important to the apostles that this faith worked at Abraham before Jewishness worked in Abraham. So the Jews shouldn't be standing around acting like they're somebody special. You know, we're more complete people than you are. No, all Gentiles, everybody has the same access to the promise of Abram, the faith of Abram, um, because of this position. The same argument is given with Melchizedek. Melchizedek, it says in verse 18, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be, be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He doesn't say Yahweh. Moses doesn't even have him say Yahweh. It's God Most High. None of them is the name of God. It is the same God. But it's an interesting de uh, deviation uh, from that. The blessing isn't anything of real too much content. Blessed be you. Blessed be God. But the writer of Hebrews, I have it here on the side, he makes much of Melchizedek's role, in, and you've got, you got to have a 
decide how far you're going to go with it because the writer of Hebrews pushes it pretty hard. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Zedek is king, and I guess Melchi is righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Most people think that's Jerusalem. We don't know that. Um, the name of Jerusalem used to be Jebus before David, but then before that it was Ursulima, uh, named after a god, Shalem, who is the god of dusk. Uh, it was a pagan city, and, and we're not sure where Jerusalem comes from. Um, there may be derivations of the god of dusk because it's like twilight. It's the peaceful time of the day. And so that might be the connection between the languages of Shalem, the god, and Salem, peace. It could be. Salem could be, but the people aren't sure that Melchizedek is uh, uh, the king of Jerusalem. And the, the writer of Hebrews seems to think it's more important that he's the king of peace. He doesn't even refer to Jerusalem in the situation. He wants him to be the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What's nice about this is he takes Melchizedek, who Christ is a priest after the order of, it says, makes him just like Christ, king of righteousness, king of peace. He blesses Abraham on the far side, way before he became the father of the Jews. And the writer of Hebrews argues, that, see how great he is. Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tithe of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brethren, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who is not their genealogy, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you're going back farther into the, you might say, the mists of of early religion for our religion. And you find this figure who is like the Son of God bracketing Abram's life on one end, showing a superiority to him by blessing him and receiving the tithes from. This is before the tithe law was Moses and the tithe law didn't exist. People understood this sort of thing. They would give these sorts of things to the gods. So Abram gives it to Melchizedek, and then you find out that the, also in Galatians that the promise that Abraham received is also pointing to Christ. So it's like Melchizedek is either a type of Christ or Christ himself, that he pushes it very hard. There is, he is a, a, a priest without end. And you begin to wonder whether or not the writer of Hebrews was suggesting Melchizedek was an appearance of Christ. You can go with that as you will. But he's arguing definitely that this event in Abram's life was an event that was a superior Gentile blessing um, uh, that anchored Melchizedek and Melchizedek's priest in Christ 
as the bracketing elements in our religion. And, and Abraham as the, this, his exercise of faith, and then the, 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 you might say the genealogy of faith, not the genealogy of the patriarchs. We're not looking so much at following Isaac and Jacob and which of the sons of Judah or Reuben or whoever, Simeon, uh, trying to prove how Jewish we are. We're looking at people who are historic for faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews does in 11 and 12. He talks about all these great people of faith. That's your real genealogy. We share that same God and faith throughout. And if we anchor it in Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, um, uh, it will keep us from stepping into the, you might say, the, the trying to prove our bona fides by who we're related to or whether or not we are raised in the right church or what, what doctrine we, we espouse or whatever uh, of, of that kind, but whether or not we're people of faith. The king of Sodom wants uh, the people. Abraham says, no, not going to do it. Uh, I don't want you to think you made me rich. Uh, verse 15, right there at the bottom. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, at this point, he's living in somebody else's land, on somebody else's land, with their permission. Um, he's hanging out with Mamre and Eshkol and those guys. It's not a developed society. You don't have a number of cities. You probably have uh, oases, water holes, small villages. You don't have the development of major city-states in Palestine um, until quite a bit later when you get the Jerichos and the, and the like. Um, and so he's, he's got, I got no kit. I'm 70-something years old now, maybe 80 by this point. Um, my wife's 70. She's never been able to have a kid. Um, we get the hit that Abraham has had kids in this next passage, but kind, the kind that don't count for this. He says, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me if I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. We get the feeling that Eliezer is a, uh, uh, Abram's child through a concubine. Um, and Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. The distinction between what you consider free offspring, uh, the, 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 the child of your free wife, versus the child of, like we find out later with Hagar and Ishmael, uh, we know that Abram had other concubines besides Hagar. So um, I'm, I'm thinking that Eliezer is one of his concubines' kids, but he's a slave because he was a child of the slave wife. Um, and, and Abram doesn't consider that... Um, uh, what he wants to be believing or he wants something to anchor this on. But behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And this is the famous verse. And he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And that's the one that's quoted in Romans, well, right here on the side here. Abraham believed God and was reckoned in his righteousness. That's what St. Paul anchors your faith on. It says, 
because your righteousness of deed isn't righteous enough. You've been wicked. The only righteousness available to you is that given to you in faith. Because everything that you would do of action is not a gift or an answer to a promise, but it's wages. That's what Paul argues there in verse 4. And in verse 5 is what I've been pointing out uh, this evening of the Romans there on the side. And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. I was thinking about that because I was reading some various commentaries. Uh, I don't own them. I looked up bump online. People were going through all sorts of conniption fits to try to make Abram giving his wife away to be a good act. And I, going, because they needed him to be, they, they were trying to make him good. But the whole point of this is we trust him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Abram is made righteous by the, the grace of God given to him through his faith. But even that is, a, I, I like the fact it's not some sort of, not only was he not entirely a saint. He follows up, you will learn later in his life, he does things that prove his faith. His faith is not without works. That's very, very clear. His faith is not without works. But you also know that even his believing is a wrestling match. The crows, the crows. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Because let's be frank, Abraham never does. Okay? He doesn't. He doesn't. He dies there, living in a hotel. Okay, that's basically it. A KOA campground. That's all he's got. And a promise. How am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, that's going to be, what you're hearing, if you're listening to this online, is a murder of crows on the top of the tree. The, the claim of, the claim of um, um, God's promise if you don't read it closely, you don't realize that the promise then gets hung out in front of Abraham 400 years. That's, that's what he's told. If you jump down, he's he told, told to make these sacrifices, a ram, a sheep, goat, a turtle, dove, a young pigeon, cut them in half. It's all very fancy, fancy. And then he, um, uh, he falls asleep and the Lord speaks to him. And he says, verse 13, Know of a surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. People who come after you are still going to be sojourners. And will be slaves there. It's going to get worse. And they'll be oppressed for 400 years. Then I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He basically says, you're not getting it. He said, how shall I know I will get this? You're not getting it. 
But that which you believe of me will put you in a state. You'll be gathered to your, um, um, go to your fathers in peace. You'll be living to a good old age. He lives to 175. He's got another 100 years. Approximately after this point. Another 100 years ago. Good old age. Gathered to his fathers in peace. And a belief that God will bless his descendants. Looking forward to other people's lives that will come back to this land and get it. And he gets this vision of a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing through the pieces of animals. It's kind of... I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it because we don't know what the, the motif was. This is before the ceremonial law and priests aren't doing it, he's doing it. And what's with the flaming pot? It was smoking pot or flaming pot? Smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. What does that mean? Well, you wouldn't want to come to a Bible study with this kind of activity going on. Where the leader of the Bible study grabs a he-goat, cuts it in half, makes us all march between it, and then we all get ripped on peyote and see the, <laughs> see the flaming torch going through it. It's a very thick experience. It's not God giving him a crystalline view of the theology. It's a direct, direct, uh, grotesque, bloody promise that you have to get up into your armpits with dead animals and, and visions. <coughs> On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And then he describes the land of all the nations that he is going to gain from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. This is, the river of Egypt is not the Nile, it's, it's a river that's just off map here that comes here right at the corner of the Mediterranean, it's called the river of Egypt. And all the way up to the Euphrates is what is promised to the people of Israel. Um, uh, people think the Euphrates over at Babylon, but the Euphrates is north of Syria um, uh, at, the, at, its high, at its high point. Now, with the um, with the idea that you're seeing Abraham learning this religion out of virtually nothing, his parents were pagans. He encounters this god. He sort of practices personally worshiping it, and it's everything is just given to Abram personally. He's talked to God personally. He builds altars personally. He worships God personally. He, gets, he, he disobeys God personally. He doesn't get the promise that is the thing he's living his life by. It's not given to him personally. The big things are never given to Abram. He just is reassured and gathered to his fathers in peace. And you're, the promises that you have received, you have the promise of the forgiveness of sin and life eternal. Some of these things, some of the things you gain, the peace you have in the life now, but you, you say, well, why do, I think this is why a lot of people like to get into end times and try to craft a utopia that Christians get to live in. It wouldn't be great if we changed the world for Jesus and, and all the rest. And they, well, you know, what if you just had a gr good old age, went to your fathers in peace, and then saw the promises fulfilled, life eternal? That's where you're given it. The, Abram's faith is a very personal, not institutional, uh, not a religion that's got a lot of traction in the ancient world. 
He's got nothing to go visit, no theologians to talk to about it, no books to read. You've got the same faith, the same mysteries, the same thickness. You've got a Christ, a God, who may or may not have appeared as Melchizedek, welcoming this father of faith and blessing him and becoming the promise himself, the offspring that was promised to Abraham, and then he became the promise that we have. So this is this has got a lot of, you might say, personalness, and when it and it gets personal, it's not the personalness, could I live a perfect life for my God? Well, the whole point of this religion was that we were caught up in iniquity. Um, says this in uh, on the left-hand side there on the last page, uh, verse 7, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. He's tying it all together as the answer to the personal, not the institutional. Our father in the faith is Abraham in the ultimate sense, our, our patriarch, to what faith is like and the nature of his faith and the personalness of his faith is really a kind of, we've sort of made him famous and, and drafted a, um, a medieval kingdom around Abraham and really he was uh, going out not knowing whither he went and figuring out his God and figuring out what was right and wrong about it. down in verse uh, 16 there at the bottom. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's a, it's a wonderful statement that these are things that you have to work out as to whether or not you have met your God um, and whether none, nobody else here believed anymore in the same God. Would you still believe in Yahweh? Would you still be... No churches open. Nobody wanted to believe. You were the only one on the Palouse. Only one in the Northwest. Nobody cared. You still believe. Is your religion the kind of faith, even with your flaws, is your religion, did you choose your God? Or would you stop choosing this God if all these bells and whistles, you know, potlucks, uh, flip charts, uh, satellite maps, whatever else you might want, just to keep you faithful, have to produce these sorts of things. <laughs> Talk to yourself about it. Because your faith has got to be there like it is for Abraham. That's the faith that is reckoned as righteous. Even with his wickedness. Even with his mistake. Well, oh my gosh. <laughs> I impress myself sometimes. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for Abraham's calling and how in the midst of not knowing the things that we're given to know, things he would have longed to have, out of paganism, into a following of you, uh, we'd ask that we would share the greatness of his faith and that we would share in his um, being declared righteous by him. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.